Catherine the Great Part 2, and believe me, we expected it too. But on recording day, I had strep, and Susan had the flu, and we just couldn't face being typhoid Marys for the rest of our families, so we simply didn't meet when we were supposed to. So I was casting around for a solution for what to give you today, and I thought of a conversation that I had with Carol Wallace last year. She wrote the book To Marry an English Lord that inspired Julian Fellows to create Downton Abbey, and incidentally inspired us to start this very podcast. It's all about the American heiresses in the Gilded Age who married into the British aristocracy, like Lady Grantham did on Downton Abbey. We started out by talking about a certain episode of Downton Abbey, Season 5, Episode 3, in which Lord Grantham is being a condescending pill to his wife, Cora, and drives her into the orbit of the art expert, which I think you can still watch at pbs.org, maybe for a small fee. Anyway, I'll put a link to a recap in the show notes if you need to refresh your memory. But that's not all we talked about. So here's my conversation with Carol Wallace, author of To Marry an English Lord, which is my favorite book of all time, Gilded Age expert, and one of my heroes, actually. Thanks to her for talking to me, and thanks to you for your patience. We hope to have Catherine Part 2 up for you just as soon as we can. And without further ado, on with the show. So, Carol, can we please talk about the Cora background thing? I just watched the last episode. Did you watch Downton? Are you, you watching? Know, I have to confess, Beckett, I missed last Sunday. So I read a recap on the web, but I don't know exactly what happened. So why don't you fill me in? There's no spoilers here. It's something we actually knew, but she did reveal she's walking and talking with the man who admires her, who weirdly played a servant in Gosford Park. So I'm having a hard time reconciling him as a nobleman right now. So she just basically mentioned she's from Cincinnati, which I actually didn't know. I can't believe so. This is what I missed is all of Cora suddenly spills her backstory and I'm not there. I'm sorry. Well, her basic premise is, well, the money was new and I was pretty. Um, Serious, Becca? This is actually what was in last Sunday. I'm just, I could shoot myself, but... Anyway, okay. It's just Fine. a walk and talk. I think it's because Robert is being a poo head. And, you know, he's really dismissing anything she ever says. And here's a man who wants to hear everything she has to say. And I think it's leaking out. Yeah, that makes sense. I think, to be fair, I do think Robert's kind of under the gun. Being Robert Grantham in 1920 is not a whole barrel of laughs. Plus, hasn't he put on weight? <laughs> I don't know, but he has a girlfriend named Isis. I've noticed that. Yes, clearly. Clearly. And in fact, this book, To Marry an English Lord, um, I'm doing a lot of lectures and stuff on this right now because it's Downton season. And one of the laugh lines in my lecture is when I talk about how English aristocrats were nicer to their dogs than they were to their wives. And of course, when I say that, I'm seeing Isis's rear end, you know, wagging away as we open Downton Abbey. So absolutely true. Absolutely true. She also, of course, we kind of knew this, but she mentioned that her father was Jewish. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Oh, wow. Now, that's interesting because a friend of mine was asking me about that. And it's a question that has come up before um, among, obviously, among my friends who are Jewish. They always want to know how realistic it really was for English aristocrats to have known, let alone married, Jewish girls. And my answer is always, you know, it's pretty unusual. So it's interesting to me to hear that Cora finally talks about that on the show. And weirdly, okay, so Julian Fellows flat out has said that he based, I think his name's Isidore Levinson. Uh, We haven't seen him. Papa, it may in fact 
be not alive. I, I can't remember, oh, but yeah. on yeah. Mary Leiter's father, who was yeah. a Lutheran, right? Yeah, no, he wasn't Jewish, but there is some, if I remember correctly, um, there's some idea that a number of the German immigrants to the United States in the 1840s and 50s may have converted when they got here in part because they could not find religious congregations that suited them once they got to the United States. So, you know, to go from the shul to the Protestant church just was a, a matter of pragmatic choice at the time. So um, that's a possibility. Interesting, though, that that's that that came out. And I have always wondered because Mary uh, Leiter's father, I mean, Levi, you know, that is such a Jewish name. So Levi Ziegler. Oh, I didn't even know that. Oh my gosh. I'm just His middle name is Ziegler. So Levi Ziegler Leiter. So there it is. Um, I just found a website where this guy has listed it's only 30 different current male, I must say, mostly members of the nobility. And I quote, that have Jewish ancestry. So it's not that common. Wow. Yeah, it is pretty unusual. And there's, um, there was a lot of anti-Semitism sort of built into the English aristocracy, uh, you know, and probably still is for that matter. Ooh, and I wonder, I don't, that's speculation that happens in Gosford Park where that kind of uh, led to England's delay in World War II. Oh, interesting. In yeah. the 30s or their delay in interfering or messing with it in any way. So I don't know. That's speculation too. So I was reading that the greatest gift of the American heiresses, should I say, was ridiculous self-esteem. But Cora, I see, I wish you'd seen this episode. She obviously didn't have that because she said, my mother wanted this. And, you know, she shipped me off here and I was looking around and everyone else knew what to do. And I felt kind of felt weird and out of place. And, you know, maybe it was her mother all crazy. She didn't have the self-esteem, but I don't think she was ever really allowed to have self-esteem. Oh, that's so interesting. And of course, you know, as we've seen Shirley MacLaine, she's such a dominating, you know, just one of those loud, bumptious American women in a way. And Cora has always seemed like a much more kind of downplayed, um, much more refined version of womanhood than her mom did. Interesting that she talks about not not really being confident. And and I think you have a point about the ridiculous self-esteem. But again, there are exceptions to that. If you look at, say, Jenny Jerome, then yes, totally a woman who is ready to take the world on, on any terms. But I think there are other women, if we look at those American heiresses. I mean, Consuelo Vanderbilt might be a better example of the woman who's kind of pushed into this match by a mother. And in fact, if you look at Alva Vanderbilt, have you ever seen any of those later pictures of Alva Vanderbilt where she's a, a suffragette? Oh. And she's wearing, um, honestly, now that I think about it, you know all those spiky feathers in Shirley MacLaine's hats? Yeah. Alva's, I mean, I, it's what the style was, but also Alva Vanderbilt is photographed wearing a couple of those. So maybe that's kind of what Fellows was thinking when he invented the Shirley MacLaine character, is that kind of really domineering woman who knows exactly what she wants for her daughter, and her daughter doesn't get to have any say in the matter at all. I wish they had talked more about the meeting, and maybe that's coming in the future. I just, I, you know, my kingdom for a prequel, kind of. <laughs> I mean, she referred earlier, laid it out. It might have even been season one that there was no love on his part. And yes. the fact that she said that made me think, well, maybe she fell in love with him and it was monetary on his behalf. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. And that would match very closely with the Mary Leiter, George Curzon matchup. 
yeah. where George married Mary for her money and then later grew to love her very much, whereas she was madly in love with him right from the get-go. And I always thought, because Robert, and particularly in the early episodes, Robert and Cora seem so nice together, right? They seem mm-hmm. happy. And it's just now, as things are getting harder for him, he's not standing up to the pressure very well. Well, maybe he hasn't had to deal with any adversity ever before. Could be, could be. I mean, there's something kind of babyish about him right now, don't you think? Sort of like a little boy who's not getting what he wants out of life. Well, even the stupid cricket pitch. Like, he's not letting people put up a war memorial on his cricket pitch. Yeah, exactly. Robert is not in too many people's favorite books right now. It kind of surprised Violet hasn't given him a talking to. Isn't that her job? (laughs) I just love her, by the way. She's She's my favorite. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Don't you think that Julian Fellows probably really loves writing those zinger lines for her? I do. And I think the fact that she has a Russian prince on a string here... <laughs> I'm excited yeah, about that part. Yeah, and he looks great too with the you know sort of the long hair and the kind of the sad eyes and you know. There was yeah. literally Carol. There was literally when it got really cold here. A man. I live in kind of a uh, old section of town, and there was a man with that hair walking in a full length fur coat with like spurs on down the street in the snow, and he was like his fur coat was swish clink swish. Uh, Clink. And when I saw that guy, that Russian prince, my husband and I looked at each other and we're like, oh, it's that guy from the street. That's who that was. It's like, oh, he just left his horse back a few blocks or something. And now he's going to write angry poetry and drink chinar and absinthe at me or whatever. <laughs> so why do you think... I, okay, so we talked about the fact that we think there was love on most of the heiress's side. Now, you know, Jenny Jerome is a separate thing. Super love 2000. Are you back? I am back. I lost you for a little while. Yeah, what was that? I don't know. All of a sudden I got a message that said, danger, Skype has lost this call. Um, Well, that's all right. We were just, we were shifting from the guy with the fur and the spurs to the next thing. (laughs) Well, I wanted to go back a little bit. Like we talked about that. It was love for the heiresses probably, or at least glamour. If not love. I don't know. Honestly, why do you think that they threw away basically their whole, I mean, so is it me or is it you? Hello? Oh. And this is where Skype punked out on me. And we talked about how much that Russian prince looked like Jay Peterman. We talked about Lady Mary's lackadaisical parenting style and the miniseries called Manor House, which I highly recommend getting hold of. And you'll just have to trust me. We were scintillating. Here's the rest of the conversation. I did want to know, I've always wanted to know this, how did you get interested in um, this whole period of time? You know, okay, the true, true answer is Georgette Hare. Have you ever read any Georgette Hare novels, Beckett? No, I thought she was more Regency. She is, but that was like, you know, that was my gateway drug. And I was about 12. Oh. And I just, you know, that was it. And that got me hooked on the 19th century in general. And then I just kind of scooted a little bit along the chronological ladder until, I don't know, somehow the latter half of the 19th century is really, in a way, because it's, it's enough like our time so that you can kind of tiptoe backward and feel as if you might be able to understand what was going on emotionally. 
-hmm. but it's also incredibly exotic. And partly, I think, it seems to me, and I know this is inaccurate and sentimental, but I do appreciate the sense of social structure of the era. You got to remember, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, but <laughs> people are like, oh my God, you know, your parents go up to it ashram and you know you're <laughs> sitting at home eating cheerios at the age of 12 and it's just not fun right. so in a way the victorian era always looked safe to me and that's um part of the reason i liked it you know i had said the other day to somebody and they were kind of shocked and i said i sometimes only some days want that pedestal back kind of horrible of me to say but i think what i meant was what you said like sometimes it would be nice to know what was expected of me and then not have to wonder Yes, I agree with you absolutely about that. And and um, sometimes, again, it's, you know, you don't want to say this to everybody. So here we are, you know. Saying it to everyone. Exactly. But, um, you know, limits can be constructive. People say that about child rearing, too. Yeah. <laughs> Funny thing about that, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, obviously, there's a lot of, lot of leeway. But, um, I mean, I'm not saying I want to corset, but. Um, oh, I don't know about that. Oh, well, actually, yes, there have certainly been times when, I mean, you know, sometimes I do look at those women and think, yeah, my clothes would fit better if I were wearing whalebone, <laughs> but then I wouldn't be able to move. So I guess that's the drawback. You know, our looking back nostalgically is probably a cheap shot. I think nostalgia generally is a cheap shot, but nevertheless, there it is. What do you get asked the most, do you think? You know, people always wonder uh, what the actual inspiration was for Tamarian English Lord. And I always say Edith Wharton and Henry James, and then they look blank. But that is actually true. So that's a big question. We don't, once did um, an Age of Innocence minicast where we kind of oh. went through everything. Oh, I love that so much. Now, I don't love, and I've said this before, this should come as a surprise to no one, I do not love the casting of Winona Ryder. No... But at the end, that final scene, when she reels him back in, I kind of think that's redemptive of the casting. I mean, <laughs> you know, um, and, and can we just, okay, Daniel J. Lewis. Is that perfection? <laughs> it's perfection. It is. He plays Wait. repressed and tortured. Oh, my God. And that scene where he starts to peel the glove down Michelle Pfeiffer's wrist. Oh, my goodness. See, sometimes more clothes is better. Well, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yes. Little mystery. Little mystery never heard. Maybe that's the secret to the whole thing. Can we talk about the clothes for a second? Absolutely. I am really tired of the 1920s. <laughs> I want these girls to have clothes with shapes in them. Well, I, I just had to get that off my chest. Well, I, I was noticing, and I'm, I'm kind of a fan of the 20s, you know, full disclosure here, despite my hourglass, you know, situation, I got married in a beaded short uh, 1920s dress. Ooh, wonderful. Great. That weighs a heck of a lot. I bet. I bet. Um, but, uh, you are correct. I was noticing the other day when I was watching, I was, uh, it was a servant and I couldn't tell you which servant, but I'm like, the booty does not look flattering in this dress. It is like a sack. There's somebody wandering around those halls. Maybe it's, um, Miss Baxter. Someone's got like that, you know, that loose waistband that sits right on top of your hips and there is no no kind of clothing that's less flattering than that. I know. Even Rose, um, you know, pulls it off better than anyone, but... Yeah. But it's it's challenging. Now, Rose, I want her to go away. Is she going to go away? <laughs> She's so annoying. She drives She me. reminds me of... Remember when Brady Bunch was popular, and then all of a sudden they added... Well, didn't they add, like, Cousin Oliver or something? Like, the little kid grows up, 
or, you know, dies in childbirth, <clears throat> right. um, Sybil, and then they have to bring on a younger, distant uh, relative to fill the cute kid spot, kind of. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's, yeah, yeah. And also, I think they kind of had to have somebody pushing the limits in a way that is actually quite appropriate for the 1920s. It's just, she kind of thinks she's so cool, it drives me insane. She's kind of smug. But there you have it. She is pretty. I'll give her that. She's funny, though, about the radio, because I remember my country grandma was uh, that exact same Robert recalcitrance to embrace the modern technology. And she used to say, like, letter writing's not good enough anymore. You can't just catch a passing boy and hand him a note anymore. Like, why do we all have to have these phones in our house and be reachable all the time? And be reachable all the time. Why? Why? Because, <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> that that horse is out of the barn. <laughs> I think that's all that I really have to talk about. Unless you want to talk about Newport, I'm all about it. Yeah, you have a question? Well, it's, I don't know if it's so much a question, but it's a, um, I believe it's the Elms that has a behind the scenes, what do they call it? Back of house tour, I think. And you have to book it. You can't just show up. I mean, it, those tickets will be gone. And they take you first downstairs and you see the kitchens uh-huh. And you see the coal tunnel. There's guys that did nothing all summer, and it's just summer, um, that take trucks of coal up and down that tunnel all day. And okay, that's their so whole job. This brings up something that strikes me over and over again, particularly in a place like Newport or any of these, you know, these English country houses. Uh, I, a couple, let's see, it was last, not last spring, but the spring before, I went on a Smithsonian travels tour of Edwardian country houses as a kind of, I forget what, docent kind of person. So to a lot of these houses. And what's really striking when you do some of these tours and you do the downstairs and the upstairs or the backs, you know, it's backstage and front stage. The whole thing is so theatrical. Mm -hmm. And obviously that's happening in Newport as well, because, you know, God forbid anybody should see Cole Tunnel. Nobody is supposed to see that coal comes and goes. It's all like front of the house. You just see the pretty part. And all of the effort that goes on to make this pretty stuff happen must become, must be invisible. And that's kind of a startling phenomenon. And, and it's interesting that there's such a tradition in Downton and before that in upstairs, downstairs of kind of exposing and juxtaposing those two sides of these incredibly grand ways of life. It was really great to take that tour and, you know, see why the pastry chefs all went crazy because they're in a dark, cold, (gasps) tiled hole with no light so that the pastry would be properly made, you know. And then then you go up. We all walked up the stairs and the, the leader of the tour stopped halfway up. And, and she's like, actually, you guys can stop halfway up, but probably they're so used to climbing all these stairs. They just went straight up to the servants' uh, uh, accommodation on the very, very top floor. Oh, yeah. So they would never even be seen. So there's this whole, like, parallel existence kind of in, in between the walls almost. It was crazy. So I loved it. And then I took the front of house, like you said, with the theater front of house tour and was even more impressed. I would I would take the servant one first and then the front of house. You know, I love it. It's a lot of sense. You have you you have a grasp of what what goes into it all, which was an enormous amount. And then we're back to the original question, which is for whom for whose benefit is this all happening? I, I don't even know why Newport happened. (laughs) <laughs> except that if they left, they would lose their place in society. You you taught me that in To Marry an English Lord. Yeah. 
Yeah. So you had to decamp all mass, or you might risk losing your place on the ladder. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And that's a very specifically American thing. It didn't happen like that at all in, in England, where your, you know, your title persists anyway. So That's like a handbag on the seat. <laughs> Let's just say a coronet on the seat then. Okay. So you put your coronet on the seat and held your place until you got back from... Uh, you know, shooting the partridges or whatever in the country. Yeah, exactly. Or the grand tour. Where, yeah. Or, you know, whatever it was. Good. Great. Well, is there anything that you would like to advise besides the marvelous epic inspiration for the podcast to marry an English Lord offered by yourself? Is there any other reading material or website or anything you'd like to encourage people to go out and explore for themselves? What a great question. Um, well, of course, everybody should read Edith Wharton's The Age of Innocence because it's a tremendous inside view on all of this. There are also some really good biographies. I am partial to Consuela Vanderbilt's The Glitter and the Gold, which is her memoir of her time as uh, the Duchess of Marlborough. She's kind of whiny, but boy, it's a great inside look. <laughs> um And let's see, I'm looking at my bookshelf now. A really heavy Judy book, but a really interesting one is called The Decline and Fall of the English Aristocracy. That's for people who want a book that's going to last them about a year and a half. And, um, oh, you know, there's also, there's a really nice biography of um, Mary Curzon, Mary Leiter Curzon by Nigel Nicholson. And I bet that might be available pretty readily online by now. It's really good, too. So if somebody would like to follow you, follow your movements, get in touch, see what you're up to, where shall they go? The best bet is you can check in at my website, which is carolwallacebooks.com. On Facebook, I maintain a page for To Marry an English Lord. And those are probably the two best ways. I do have a Twitter account, which is carol underscore Wallace, but I don't tweet that often. Pinterest as well. Oh, and your Pinterest is Carol Wallace? It is, yes. And there's a nice board for To Marry an English Lord. My favorite book of all time, people. You know this about me. <laughs> Thank you, Beckett. It was great to chat. I really enjoyed this. And I'll really look forward to hearing it when it comes up. Thank you for being on the show. And we're so excited to have you. And I will talk to you again soon. Okay, great, Beckett. Thanks so much. It was a lot of fun. You can actually get hold of an audio version of To Marry an English Lord for free by following the link to audible.com on our website, thehistorychicks.com, and signing up for their free trial. It will help us a lot, and you can listen to my favorite book. If you'd like to learn more about the heiresses we mentioned today, Consuelo Vanderbilt and Mary Leiter, I've put a link to our Gilded Age heiresses episode from way back in 2011 in the show notes so you can go have a listen. Jenny Jerome, Winston Churchill's American mother, is there too, though she has her very own episode. Thanks so much for taking this detour with me today, and we'll be back to our regular plan very soon. Bye! <laughs>